You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of essential doctrines of the Christian faith. We're calling Seven Hallmarks of an Orthodox Church. With this week's message, here's pastor to young adults, Caleb Carmichael. So we're in the middle of this series called Hallmarks, looking at these statements, these truths that we believe to be anchors of our faith. And the reason we're doing this as a church is we just came out of a series in 2 Peter in which Peter warns the church to be aware of false teachers, teachers that would come in and try to distort the truth of Jesus, distort the truth of Scripture. And so we as a church wanted to examine if a false teacher were to to come in or a false teacher were to, to say something, we want you to be equipped and prepared to know that what they're saying is false. And so this this series kind of builds upon itself. And so we started a few weeks ago looking at Scripture, the authority and the inerrancy of the Bible that you're holding in your hand. And we looked at all of the evidence and the reasons on why we can trust these words as God's word. And then if you think of it sort of like a relay race where where one thing is handing the baton off to the next, the the week after that we looked at a really simple and easy-to-understand doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity, that God somehow is three and yet he's one, that that it's not like 33% this and this, that somehow there's these three parts of God, and yet he's still one. And, and, you know, we talked about the idea of buffering, that sometimes when we think of these ideas, our minds start spinning, and we can't quite make them work. And then last week, Joe was here, and he had another simple topic, Jesus, right? That's easy, right? That somehow, though, that that Jesus is 100% man, and then 100% God, and that somehow 100% and 100% add up to uh, 100%. And we're like, that's hard to understand, that's difficult. And, and so this morning, I think our topic is a little easier to understand. There's, the math is simpler. And so, so here's our doctrinal statement that I'm going to read, and then we'll, we'll walk through what this actually means. So if you have your outline, you can see it printed there. If you're following along in the YouVersion app, you can see it there as well. But our doctrinal statement pulled from, from our Website, you can see it there as well. It says, we believe that the first human male willfully sinned and consequently experienced immediate relational separation from God, i.e. spiritual death, which then led to his physical death. And as a result, all people are born under the domination of indwelling sin, which leads to personal sin, and that apart from Jesus Christ, all will spend eternity separated from God. So essentially what we're going to say this morning, what we're going to look at this morning, is that Adam and Eve sinned. And not just Adam and Eve, but but you and I, we, all of humanity have sinned, and that sin breaks things. So there's our math this morning. Adam and Eve sinned, we sinned, sin breaks things. And it broke everything from the the grandeur and the, the order of the cosmos all the way down to an individual level. It broke something in me, and it broke something in you. And so this morning isn't a difficult concept to understand. It's not a difficult concept to compute because it doesn't take much to convince you that the world is broken, right? Just look around. Open up Twitter or turn on the news and you'll see example after example after example of the way that our world is broken, that it's wrong. And we cry out longing saying, why is it this way? So it's easy to see how the world out there is broken. But I think maybe my challenge this morning is to convince you that just like the world out there is broken, right inside my heart and yours is broken as well. If I were to ask you about yourself, I wonder what you would say. What is your participation level in the brokenness 
of the world. In a recent Barna study, basically good. That if you were to poll the Americans, 70% of them are going to say, yeah, people, we're, we're pretty good on the whole. There might be a bad apple here or there. There's, there's probably some that are ruining it for the rest of us. But, but generally speaking, people are good. We're good people. Or maybe this stat in a similar line of thinking, that 48% of adults, so about half the population, affirm the statement that a person who is generally good, which we think is most of us apparently, a person who's generally good or does enough good things for others will earn a place in heaven. If you're here and you take that back to our doctrinal saying, we say, well, that doesn't line up. It says whoever doesn't trust in Jesus is, is you know, you have to trust in Jesus to get to heaven. And this is say, well, you just have to be a good person. So, so which is it? Are we good or are we bad? Is there some giant cosmic scale system out there that's weighing every decision you make? And if you do a good thing, it kind of tips in your favor. And if you do a bad thing, it kind of tips this way. If you do really good things, it's over here. Like, is that how the, the world works? Is that the system that we're living in? So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to try to answer that question. And we're going to start by opening up your copy of Scripture to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, right at the very beginning. You can open up your copy of Scripture. You can follow along in the Church Center app or the YouVersion Bible app. And if you don't have a Bible, um, there's some at the back corners of the room. We would love for you to take one and keep it. It's our gift to you this morning. So Genesis chapter 1, we see God creating. And we see him bringing order out of chaos. We see God establishing function and rhythms and systems to our universe. And at the center point, this focal point of this creation is this garden. It's this sacred space where heaven and earth will meet, where the physical and the spiritual are going to collide. And in that space, he places Adam and Eve, humanity. And they're sinless and they're pure. And then he does something remarkable, something incredible with them. He gives them responsibility. And not just a small responsibility. That God has created humanity, humanity to rule and to reign with God. And that's unbelievable. Genesis 1, I'm going to start reading in verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them, mankind, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. He created us with worth and value because we're created in God's own image. In verse 28, and God blessed them. He blessed them not because of anything that they had done. No, he blessed them out of the goodness and love and kindness of his heart. He blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Tremendous responsibility, tremendous freedom, tremendous authority. But surely, right, it's surely God had to give them a bunch of ground rules, right? Like if he's going to give them all of this authority, he has to give them some ground rules. Because, because let's be honest, God is nothing but this big cosmic killjoy who's trying to take all the fun out of life, right? So let's see. Turn over to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, here we, go, here we go, here's the commands, here's the rules, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Why? For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's it. One restriction. 
tremendous authority, tremendous responsibility, and one simple rule. And I think that God in this moment through this rule is posing a question to Adam and Eve. What I think he's asking is, will you trust me? Will you trust me? Because we'll see in a minute that this tree is beautiful, that it makes good looking fruit. And not only that, it does something mysterious and desirable. It gives one knowledge, knowledge of good and evil. It elevates you. It makes you like God. So God's asking, will you trust me? See, God didn't create sin. He didn't create evil, but he did create a world in which sin was possible by giving humanity the ability to choose. That without choice, there can be no relationships. Without choice, there is no true love. And so without choice, we are mindless robots simply programmed to complete a task. And so God gives humanity in this moment a choice. Will you trust me or will you trust yourself? And the moment of truth eventually comes, whether this was hours, days, or years later. There comes a point when the question must be answered. Will you trust me? And we see that doubt is introduced. Genesis chapter 3 starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you see it, introducing doubt right here. Did, I, I know you think you heard God say something, but did he really say that? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Which we remember is not what God actually said. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Eve just getting it just a little bit wrong there. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Eve, in this moment, deceived by the serpent, unsure of what God really says, see something that looks to be good, see something that says, yeah, I should have that and takes it for herself. Adam, there with her, passive and silent. The one who had received the instructions from God himself, the one who knew what God had said, he does nothing. Adam, who had been entrusted with the guidelines, who bears the weight of him and Eve's decision, he just sits there silently. And see, Adam sins on both sides of this equation, right? Adam knew what the right thing to do was. It was to stop Eve, but he didn't. But not only that, he knew what the wrong thing to do was, to not eat the fruit, and yet he took and he ate as well. I think maybe in this moment, hearing the serpent, a little bit of doubt crept into Adam and Eve's mind. Is God really good? Does, does he really know what's best for me? Because if he's good, and if he can be trusted, then why is he holding back from me? Why isn't he giving me everything? If he's good, and I can trust him, why didn't he give me this? So in this moment, we see Adam and Eve defining what is good and evil in their own mind and defining good and evil on their own terms. Will you trust me, God asks, and Adam and Eve answer, no. And the consequences are drastic. Immediately, Adam and Eve feel shame. They try to hide from God, and they try to hide from each other. That up until this point, they had lived in perfect security, and now sin is introduced, and they feel insecure. They begin to hide from each other what makes them unique 
and different. And yet, even in this moment, even in their rebellion, God comes in grace. We see God walking in the garden, and he calls out. And he says, Adam, where, where are you? And he's calling out not in anger or in terror, but in love and in mercy. And yet, even in this, there are consequences for their actions. Our choices matter. And so we see these consequences begin to be laid out in Genesis, the rest of chapter 3. We see that the serpent is cursed, eventually pointing forward to a day where he will be defeated. To the woman, it says there will be multiplied pain in childbearing. The Hebrew word is conception there. That this entire process of blessing that God has given, of, of being fruitful and multiplying, is now going to be made painful. There's going to be strain in the relationships between husbands and wives, between parents and children, that death and infertility are now introduced into this equation, that where there was blessing, there is now curse. The ground is cursed, that man will work and work, but it will break him down. It will beat him up. It will rob him of his physical health until eventually he will return to the dirt from which he came. And not only all of this, but because of their sin, it created this separation between God and man. That in taking wisdom on their own terms and in their own timing, instead of trusting on God to provide that in his timing, they were broken, separated from God. And God, in his grace, did not want them to live forever in that way. And so they're banished from the garden. And this banishment isn't a punishment, it's an act of mercy, and it's an act of grace, because in the garden is still the tree of life. That Adam and Eve are broken and separated from God, and if in that moment they had taken from the tree of life to live forever, they live forever separated from God. And so God says, no, I don't want that for them. I'm going to banish them from the garden. And so Adam and Eve, because of their sin, they miss out. They lose the garden, this sacred space where heaven and earth meet. Their sin led to their immediate spiritual death. Their banishment from the garden led to their physical death. And in this moment of rebellion, the creation order is fractured. That this design for humanity to rule and reign with God and to spread this Eden garden out to the whole earth is shattered. And there's this brokenness. This is what we see in our world today, that we look out, the world is broken. And it's because of sin. That God had brought order out of chaos. And then through sin, disorder is introduced into the universe. And it isn't just that the world out there is broken. You and I are broken too. That the consequences of Adam and Eve's decision last even to today. That it's not just that Adam and Eve sinned back there and back then and messed it up for the rest of us, which, which is true, but, but we're just as culpable. We do the same thing Adam and Eve do today. Paul one of the, the writers in the New Testament eventually becomes a follower of Jesus. He writes to the churches in Rome to explain to them what it means to follow Jesus, how to live that. And he begins to explain what sin looks like, the consequences of sin, why it's such a big deal. And Paul, in Romans, in the letter to the Romans in chapter 6, verse 23, he says this. He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So sin Let's define our terms here. Sin means to miss the mark, to, to do what you shouldn't do, or to not do what you know you should do, right? Sin is when you try to define what is right and wrong in your own eyes, when you try to become like God. And we tend to think of wages as a positive thing, right? That we think of, well, I, I went to my job and I worked hard and I earned my paycheck. I earned my wages. It's what I deserve for the work that I put in. And what Paul says, when the work that you do is sin, the wages that you earn is death. And that seems really harsh. 
But this isn't just some arbitrary punishment. It's woven into the design of the cosmos. That sin, again, separates from God. And that because God is the author and the perfecter of life, that true life is found in God, that, that when we're separated from him, there is no God and therefore there is no life. The wages, the thing that you earn when you sin is death. If you hear anything, well, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a little sinner, but I'm not like that bad. Right? Like, I know people way worse than me. You should talk to my uncle. He's a way bigger sinner than I am. Right? Like the people I work with, those are sinners. I'm, I'm you know, I'm not that bad. Paul addresses the same thing, same letter, Romans chapter 3. He says, for all, all, you, me, everyone who's ever lived except one, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of what? Of God's glory. That means it's his holiness, his perfection. So if we're sitting here thinking the standard to be right with God is I just have to be better than other people, like as long as I'm on the top half of the bell curve, right, then I'm good. Right, my good outweighs my bad. No, no, no. He says, no, we've all fallen short of God's standard. See, the standard isn't like Hitler on one side and Mother Teresa on the other. The standard is holiness. It's perfection. It's God. And Paul says, we all have sinned and we all fall short. He continues, Paul, Romans chapter 5. It's like he's just beaten up on us this morning. So therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. We're all in this together. We've all fallen short. Drive this point home and maybe at the risk of being redundant, I'm going to ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at one more verse just to make sure we really understand this. Ephesians chapter 2, it's also written by Paul, written to a different church, the church in Ephesus. And he's giving them some instructions on what it means to follow Jesus. He's giving them some encouragement as followers of Jesus. He's writing to believers here. In Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 2. And Paul's just trying to be abundantly clear with these believers. He's talking to believers, so there's this past tense. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, all of us, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That all of us, at one point, we're just doing whatever we wanted, whatever we thought was best, whatever we thought was right, following our desires wherever they took us. And he says, all of us were in that same boat and were by nature, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul's saying, by nature, we're born children of wrath, like we're not these sweet little angels. He says, no, 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 your kids, they're children of wrath. Congratulations. Like the rest of mankind. See, through sin, through Adam's sin entered the world, creation is shattered, death becomes a reality, both spiritual and physical, and we in this room, we're not immune. That we too have shared in Adam's sin, our nature and our choices are working together to lead us to the decisions that Adam and Eve made in the garden. And if you have kids, you know this is true, because you don't have to teach your kids to disobey. You don't have to teach your kids to lie. It just comes naturally to them. It's pretty amazing. Uh, I have my own story. I'm sure my mom could tell you a bunch more, but one that I remember that I'm especially 
embarrassed by, so you get to share in my embarrassment this morning, is I was much older um, in this story than I probably should have been. I would love to tell the story pretending I was like three or four, but I think I was like eight, nine, 10, 11, I don't know, older. I was, um, however old I was, is when Doc Martens were in style, like the first time, and that becomes important later. But that's how I remember this story, Doc Martens in style. I'm wearing some Doc Martens, and we're at my grandparents' house. So it's me and my mom at my grandparents' house. Um, and, and my great-grandmother, Grandma Dolly, who was in her 80s at the time, was there as well. And so my grandparents, uh, they had a hallway that had two guest bedrooms off of it. Uh, me and my mom were in one, and Grandma Dolly in the other. And um, I'm playing around, running around the house, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of lanky and clumsy and, um, you know, not the most graceful human being in the world, and wearing Doc Martens, if you know, they're big, chunky boots, right? So like, not graceful, big, chunky boots, lanky, not going good. So I'm running down the hallway, and I don't really remember exactly what I did, but I know I like tripped and fell, and my foot kind of went out and, and went into the wall and left a Doc Martens-sized hole in the sheetrock of the wall. And, you know, being the really responsible and wise 10-year-old, however old I was, did the, the right thing. I turned and ran, right? Like, left the hole in the wall, went back to the living room, and just acted like nothing happened. So my mom eventually goes, and she sees the hole in the wall, and, okay, comes and finds me and says, hey, what happened in the, in the hallway back there? Well, I don't know. What are you talking about? The, the hole in the wall? What did you do? What hole? What are, you, what are you talking about? There, there's a hole in the wall. Okay, would you, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was Dolly, my 80-something great-grandmother. <laughs> my mom didn't have to teach me how to lie. She might have should have taught me how to lie better, but she didn't have to teach me how to lie. It just came natural to me. And I would love to tell you that like, I've outgrown that, <laughs> but I haven't. Right? My wife would tell you that, that she's a rule follower. If there's a rule she's going to follow, she would tell you I'm like a rule bender or a rule skirter. or like, like Finding loopholes is like a hobby of mine. Like It brings me joy. And I'm like, that's, that's not good. That's brokenness in me. right? And she would tell you that I've passed that trait on to, to our two-year-old son. He's following in my footsteps in that. And I, and I think he would say the same is true for you, that by nature and by choice, that these things are working together to make the same decision that Adam and Eve made in the garden, to define what is good and what is bad on our own terms. Whether it's out of fear and a desire to control, or it's out of pride and a desire to elevate ourselves, we've all answered the question from God, will you trust me, with a resounding no. And yet, God is patient, and he's kind. And even in our rebellion, he wants to offer grace. He wants to offer a path to life and to restoration. Ephesians chapter 2, we left off in verse 3 where we've just talked about how we all, by nature, were, were children of wrath. We all have rebelled against God. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Verse eight, what an incredible verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. 
See, we were all dead spiritually, and we will all soon be dead physically. But just like God didn't want Adam and Eve to stay in their broken state forever, he doesn't want us to stay in that broken state either. That he's provided a way to spiritual life, and it's through his son Jesus, and it's by faith. So the question for me and the question for you today is the same as it was for Adam and Eve in the garden. God is asking, will you trust me? Will you trust me? First, with your salvation. If you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus for your salvation, God's asking, will you trust me? Will you trust that there is a God and that he is good and that that trust that you fall short of his standard? And that the only way you can be made right, the only way that you can get there is by trusting in Jesus to do it for you. That Jesus is the way that you are restored to him. Because see, in in 21st century America, the world will tell you that you can do whatever you want to do. That if you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and work hard enough, you can do anything. God says, no, you can't. You're broken. You can never earn it. You can never be good enough. But our world says, no, no, you can. It's up to you. Just work harder. I used to be really into CrossFit several years ago. I'm I'm not so much anymore. Um, But when I was, I was like the nerd who was into CrossFit. Like I would watch the CrossFit games, which is like, um, like watching the Super Bowl, but of just people working out. Like, it's ridiculous, but I would do it, right? I would watch the CrossFit games, and there's teams, actually, who would compete against each other. And one of my favorite teams was called CrossFit Invictus. That was the t- name of their team. And they got that name from a poem. Now, I, I'm, I'm, you know, not very cultured, and so the only time I really read poetry is apparently when it dealt with working out. And so, like, I would read this poem, and I'm like, yes, this is so motivational. It makes me want to work hard. Like, yes, this is, this is good, right? I'd read this in poem. Uh, It's by a guy named William Ernest Henley, and and the title is Invictus, and it goes like this. It says, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstances, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. Are you the master of your fate? Are you the captain of your soul? Or in your brokenness do you realize that the only way to find life is through Jesus? that I am not the master of my fate, that I am broken and lost and I need a savior and his name is Jesus. Because here's the deal. You get to choose. You get to choose if you're gonna trust Jesus or you're going to go your own way. You might be sitting here saying, like, I'm not that bad. I'm a good person. Like, I look out and I see there's a way worse than me. It's, it's up to me. Or like, you know, I do some good things. My good outweighs my bad. And, and here's the thing is, is Scripture actually talks about what the future is going to look like. And it gives us a picture. It paints us a picture. It gives us a glimpse of what's to come. And it talks about two judgments that will come one day. One of them is for believers. It's called the Bama Seat of Christ. And in that, uh, believers are judged according to the good things that we've done, and we actually get rewarded for those things. But there's another judgment called the Great White Throne Judgment. And in this judgment is everyone who comes, and the question at this judgment will simply be this. What did you do with Jesus? 
And if you trusted Jesus, you said, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm broken. I know I needed Jesus. Your name will have been written in the book of life. But if you hadn't, you'll come to this judgment and you'll say, what did you do with Jesus? Well, I rejected him. I wanted to do things my way. I thought I was good enough. I thought I could work hard enough. I thought it wasn't that big of a deal. So it's up to me. And it says, okay, well, then you will be judged by your works, your good and your bad. And so the problem is, this isn't the scale. Your good versus your bad. The standard, again, is holiness. It's perfection. And so if you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus for your salvation, the question from God to you this morning is, will you trust me? Because if you try to do it all on your own, you will never be good enough. But the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to be. That Jesus was good enough for you. He was perfect for you, and that when he died on a cross, he died to pay your wages, the wages that you earned through your sin. Jesus says, I'll take those. That, that like in communion this morning, we talk about Jesus' body being broken and his blood being spilled. He did that for you and for me so that we could be made right with God. And all it takes is trust. Jesus, I trust you. And for those of us in this room who have trusted Jesus, whether it was just now in this moment or we've been following him for 30 or 40 years, I think the question for us is the same from God. Will you trust me today? Because while we are new creations and we have received a new heart and we do have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we also have what the Bible calls our flesh, our old nature. And these two natures are battling it out inside of you each and every day that we have God's spirit living within us and we have this new heart and we have the old heart, our old flesh, and they're battling. They're going to war at each other every single day. And that Paul, again, in the letter of Romans, talks about this idea. And in chapter 7, he has kind of this famous, this famous verse where he talks about, I don't understand what I do. I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I want to do. And when I try really hard to do the right thing, I always mess up. I always fail. And then he gets to chapter 8 and he talks about, but when instead of trying to do it on my own, I set my mind on the things of the Spirit. When I turn my attention to the Spirit, when I walk in the day-to-day moments aware of the Spirit's presence in my life, when I do that and I'm aware of God's power working in me, that's when I find life. And that's when I find peace. Because see, even as believers, we still struggle with sin. So if you're here and you're not a believer and you, and you like don't like Christians because they're hypocrites, you're right. We know what the right thing to do is, and we still mess up. But I think we struggle with sin as believers because at a fundamental level, we're answering this question from God, will you trust me with no? There's just a little bit of doubt on us that God really knows what's best for us or really wants what's best for us. And we're like, I know better. See, I think we sin because we believe a lie. We believe a lie about what's going to give us life, what's going to give us peace, what's going to comfort us, what's going to make us happy. Maybe we believe the lie that our anger is justified. We had a rough day at work, and so it's okay when we come home and we snap at our spouse or our kids. Or maybe we believe the lie that if we tear others down, we'll feel better about ourselves so that we gossip and we judge others. Because when we judge others, I can say, well, at least I'm not like them. At least I'm better than that. Maybe we believe the lie that having a little bit more money in the bank, finally getting to whatever that number is, is going to make us finally feel secure and safe. So maybe we just cheat on our taxes a little bit or work so much that we abandon our families. Maybe we believe the lie that in order to get ahead in life, we have to look out for number one. We only have to look out for ourselves. 
So we become selfish and isolated and distrustful of others. Maybe we believe the lie that lasting comfort can be found in altering our state of mind, and so we overindulge in drink or drugs or food. Maybe we believe the lie that sex is simply about physical pleasure, and so we trade intimacy for pornography or one-night stands. Maybe we believe the lie that peace comes from being in control of my circumstances so that we plan and we have backup plans for our plans and we have backup plans for our backups of our plans. And then we worry and we stress and we try to manipulate people and things to make sure that I am always in control because that's where I'm going to find peace. And I think in all of these things and more, God is asking us, will you trust me? God's saying, I've given you guidance on how to live through my word, through the Holy Spirit, through a community of believers that you gather with. I've given you guidance, and it might not always make sense, and you might not always see the end of the road. You might not really know where it's going, but God's saying, will you trust me anyway? Because see, Adam and Eve couldn't see the whole picture either. The tree seemed good. It's like, yeah, I should be wise. I should know good from evil. Like, I I should have that. They defined good and evil on their own terms. They doubted that what God really said was good, and they took. And it's the same for us. There are so many things that might look good or sound good or that we can justify away in our minds as being right, but I think God is inviting us into so much more. He's inviting us into life, into real life, full life, a life of peace and contentment and joy. John Mark Comer wrote a book called Live No Lies, and he's talking about this very issue. And he says in the book, he says, until we come to a place of deep trust, deep trust, that what God wants for us is only our deepest happiness, and that what we actually want, the desire beneath all of our other desires, is God himself. So until we trust that God is good and can be trusted, and that what we actually want is God himself, until we believe that, we will fight to control our lives. That we will continue to think that we know better than God what will lead to our happiness. And that we will chase the wind and reap the whirlwind. I love that line because how often in my life have I chased the wind and then look around and I'm living in this whirlwind and thinking I brought this on myself. What I'm chasing the wind. And I'm not trying to beat you up this morning. I'm not trying to, to, to make you just feel awful about yourself this morning, what I'm trying to do is show you that God's way is better. Because I know from experience how often I try to do what I think is best, try to do what, try to be in control of my own life, try to go my own way, try to be the master of my fate, right? And what happens is I end up broken. See, I don't think God is sitting there up in heaven looking down on us, waiting for us to mess up so that He can zap us. Right? He already knew we would mess up, and he came and died for us anyway. He's sitting there hoping and pleading, saying, trust me, my way is better. My son Grayson, he's, he's two and a half, and he's living right in the middle of the, the, the famous terrible twos. He, he's living that life right now. Um, anything, anything that I say, he does the opposite. Um, if I ask him to do something, the answer is, is no and often runs away. Um, <laughs> he's... He's, he's just a mess, but I love him. <laughs> um, and, and for the first two years of his life, Grayson was an incredible sleeper, right? He, he was like, put him down at night. Like, all you had to do was like walk in, put him in his crib, and walk away, and he would sleep for 12 hours. And all of like you new parents, you're like, I hate you. Like, it's coming back on me right now, don't worry. Uh, right now, what happens is we go and we put him in his bed, 
And, um, you know, he, like, delays us leaving and tries to get us to come back in the room and tries to, like, trick us to do this and, like, tugs on your heartstrings. Like, he's, like, you're walking out the door and he's, like, one more hug? And I'm, like, well, yeah, one more hug. And then the 25th time he does it, it's not as cute anymore. You're, like, okay, come on, buddy, it's time to go to sleep. And, and now what he's done the last few weeks is he'll just yell. When we put him in bed and we leave, he just starts yelling. So, like, a couple nights ago, put him in bed. Um, he immediately gets out of like toward, from the end of his bed and goes to sit on the end of his bed. So he's got like a barrier on one side and a wall on the other. So really the only way in and out of his bed is at the foot of the bed. He goes and sits on the foot of the bed and he's just sitting there going, Dada, 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 Dada. Just yelling for 20 or 30 or 40 minutes. <laughs> My wife and I, like, we, we don't know what to do. So you know, we're like, he's scared he's going to wake Henley up, our, our you know, newborn. We're like, whatever. We're, we're going to let him cry it out. We're just going to let him do this. We're going to let him learn that we're not coming back in. This is not how he gets our attention. So eventually, 20, 30 minutes later, he finally falls asleep. He stops yelling, and he falls asleep at the foot of his bed. Um, and so a couple hours go by. Sam and I are starting to get ready for bed, and all of a sudden, we hear on the monitor, we hear a boom, ah! <laughs> Turn on the monitor, and we see my son laying flat on his back, going, ah, he had fallen off the bed, right on and flat on his back, but like was frozen, wouldn't move, didn't know what to do. So like I run in the room thinking like he might actually be hurt. I'm kind of like worried. I'm like, I pick him up and I'm like, are you okay? And he's like, uh-huh. I'm like, okay. Did you fall off the bed? Uh-huh. Okay. And what I really wanted to do in that moment was like, I told you so. I didn't. Hold him close and start rubbing his back and finally get him to calm down and, and go and lay him back in his bed and give him a hug and say, buddy, that's why mama and daddy, I tell you to, to keep your head on your pillow, to, to fall asleep up here, right? It's in that moment, I'm not trying to, to make his life miserable. I'm trying to, to give him life, to, to let him sleep well and to not fall off the bed. And what seems so obvious to me, I'm like, buddy, you just got to listen. You just got to trust me. And then I walked out of his room and I'm like, oh, how often do I do that with God, right? How, I mean, every single day, God says, hey, Here's some, here's some guidelines. Here's some instructions on how you should live your life. Okay, God, sounds good. And run the other way. And immediately do the opposite of what I know I should be doing. And God, the beauty of the gospel, and the beauty of the God that we serve, is that when I run my own way and inevitably fall off the bed and end up flat on my back, hurt and screaming, that God is there, ready to pick me up and to hold me close and to restore me. See, Scripture doesn't reveal every answer to every question that we have, but it does reveal our God's character. And it reveals his love for us, his compassion and his mercy and his grace. And God, for whatever reason, invites us into Eden, into ruling and reigning with him, into trusting him even when we can't see it, even when we don't fully understand it, even when we don't feel it, because our God is trustworthy. So the question for you this morning is this from God. Will you trust me today? You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.